The local church is a collection of people who are being transformed by Jesus, who live in a community purposefully to model and proclaim Jesus. Scripture tells us to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. Every story is unique. Each person is an individual who has met Jesus. All of us have strengths and weaknesses. Together, we are the church, and these are our stories. Good morning. I am Rob, and welcome to Generations Podcast. This is a series called Stories of Faith, and I know what you're thinking. This is a much worse sounding, probably better looking, but worse personality guy than I'm normally used to hearing on this, right? But rest assured, our man Jeff is still here. He is just taking a, a role in the in the guest seat today so he could share his story with all of us. So Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am doing wonderful. How are you? I am uncomfortable. I I just, uh, you know, I don't know how to be the passenger seat, but yep. I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn. I'm going to do it today. I have faith. So that could be a little uh, control issues, right? Totally. totally. <laughs> but you look great. Well, thank you. I have a face for podcasting. Yeah, I do. I really for, do. Yeah. yeah, you got a face for podcasting. <laughs> but you look like, uh, I don't know, you have you have an energy today that is lighter than than what I've seen you last time I saw you. Well, when you're listening to this, whenever whoever you are listening to it, it's going to air while I'm on sabbatical. So if you hear it, I'm even more relaxed than I am right now oh, yeah. as you're hearing yeah, it. Yeah, there you sure. go. Yeah. So what, what we wanted to do today is we wanted to take the time to let people get to know you better by sharing your story. Now, now a lot of people know the generic version of your story, right. but they don't... That, you know, we, we've never really gone over, at least since I've been around you uh, in this role, we've never gone deeper into the intricacies of what made you you sure. and, and how that uh, turned into what it did and then how Jesus came into your life from there. All right. So what I want to do is I want to just kind of open up with you sharing a little bit about your childhood. I would love to see a four-year-old Jeff Running around in like a, do four-year-olds wear diapers still? I hope not. I don't even know. I don't even know. I might have, but most four-year-olds <laughs> okay, don't. Okay. Yeah. No. So a four-year-old running around, you know, a little that kind of thing. So yeah. what was life like for you in the beginning? Like when you're as thick, as far back as you can remember? Yeah. So I can tell you something about four-year-old Jeff for sure. Um, so I was born to a mom and a dad married together who were both musicians and they were in I would say they were in a band, but they were in something kind of different than a modern day band. This was a, uh, I was born midway through 1969 in the late 60s, early 70s. They had these traveling shows and uh, it was music. My dad is actually a very talented guitarist. He's a wow. good singer. My mom's a great singer, or was, uh, and uh, was a great dancer. And they produced this almost like you'd go to Vegas and you see a full show or like some of the old TV yeah, shows, yeah, yeah. the variety hours, like they had a traveling show. And so I don't know how old I was. At probably 18 months or so, my parents went back on tour. And so the first few years of my life were spent on tour. So all over the U.S. and Canada and other places. And they had a, a pretty happening band. So if you go to four-year-old Jeff, uh, I'll give you some snapshots. One, I could speak to you in French or in English. Wow. Can't speak French anymore, uh, but I, I remember some things, but my mom spoke French, and so I would speak with her. Um, I could read 
really fluently read. And so by the time I got to kindergarten, they wanted me to skip kindergarten, uh, which I didn't do. But my reading skills were way ahead. Uh, and the reason for that is we traveled in um, a van, uh, not unlike yours. I mean, it was <laughs> early go, day, yeah. you know, 50 years ago version. <laughs> but um, we, we traveled a van we could sleep in and be on, the, on tour and on the road with. It was That's before awesome. big tour vans, right? And so when my dad would drive, my mom and I would sleep. When my, when my mom would drive, I don't, something like that. Anyhow, my mom would play games with me, but they were all like educational games. And so little mind into little Jeffrey, I was raised, um, yeah, I had a, a definite head start. What a cool experience, right? So right. were they like successful? Like this is their, this was their careers? This, like they, they were. were like legit, legit? They were, yeah. Do you and have any... This is kind of a side note, but do you have any of their music? A little you, bit. Oh, cool. I, so the thing was, um, so the next part of the story is getting a little darker, but because of that, um, because things didn't play out well, I rebelled against that. And so I'll take you right there. So yep. at five years old, my mom, who is a good mom and had a heart to be a mom, when my dad, uh, not a great dad, and really wanted to be a rock star, and had all the potential of being a rock star. And so uh, they were touring, they were full-time, they were, they were living the dream, They right? were doing it. They were doing it. My mom, I'm turning five, and the conversation became, do we get a, a teacher to travel with us, or do we settle down and have Jeff go to school? And so the decision was made, we landed in Upland, California, about 50 miles from here, and that was the beginning of the end. So my dad, um, there was some drug use and stuff. They were hippies and, and not really my mom a whole lot, but my dad did. Um, but drugs and then the rock star mentality. He had some affairs, did some things. Um, by the way, he's a Christian now. Like he's, he's changed for sure. But he, he did some things that uh, ruined their marriage. So yeah. four years old, pretty happy kid. Five years old, my parents go through a divorce. I'm the only kid, parents divorce. Fast forward two years, I'm seven years old, getting ready to turn eight, and both my mom and my dad are remarrying other people. Chaos. My, to total chaos right here. And then my dad is marrying someone who has a daughter a year and a half younger than me, it's my sister Shannon, and both of them, my stepmom now and my mom, are pregnant with my siblings, wow. right? My wow. little brother, my little sister. And so both of them are, well, one's 45, one will be 45 in September, and so they're both eight years younger than me. So in that span from five to eight, my entire world changed. And so, so yeah. let me ask you this. How was their relationship with each other? Not terrible. My mom never, like even the things I just told you about how their marriage came to an end, I didn't know that until I was an adult. And uh, my dad told me more things about his flaws. In fact, I don't think my dad's ever said an unkind word about my mom. That's good. That's and, good. And my mom really... Uh, obviously divorced my dad for some good reasons, but really never spoke that way about him. They honored the fact that he was my dad. I think they did well in yep. that area. If you're going to divorce with that's, a kid, yeah. that's the best case scenario. Yeah. So everything it always, changes. It always ruins a kid, though. Oh. It always messes with the job. And I'll take you right there. Now, I didn't know this uh, then. In fact, it was long after I was a pastor, long after I was a Christian, long after I was married to Lisa, all these things that are more the, the Jeff that everybody knows today. It was 2015, and um, I'd, been a, I'd been a pastor and a leader at a mega church. I'd then planted a church in Huntington Beach and handed that off. I'd gone and restarted a church in the high desert, 
handed that off, gone and restarted a church in Long Beach, and we were getting ready to make a significant change and start Generations. And uh, something happened, and kind of everything fell apart in that moment. And the elders at Park Church, they sent me on a four-month sabbatical. And so uh, most of the people listening, if you know me, uh, I'm a pastor, a speaker, I've published a book, so I'm an author, I just coach leaders, do all that. But I was sitting down to write because I knew I felt called to write. And I started not the book that I published. I started one about my life. And it was in 2015 that I began to write some things down. And it was about that moment when I was eight. From eight to 10, 11, 12, everything went wrong. Now, I didn't understand this until 2015. But as I'm writing it, here's what I realized. I lived in a home. Let me, let me catch up one thing. My stepdad and I get along famously today. We couldn't be in the same room for 30 years together without fighting, like violence, like right? Physically fighting. Physically fighting. And he is, uh, let, me, let me do some math. So he is 75 right now. I promise you he is still a legitimate threat at 75. And so <laughs> he was a San Bernardino County Sheriff. My mom met him. He search and rescue guy. He was special, special ops in the military, a fighter, a mili- uh, uh, martial arts guy. He boxed, I think, until he was 70. I mean, like this guy, he's still dangerous. Let's just say that, right? <laughs> and, um, and so he and I just didn't get along. And I mean, violently didn't get along. It sounds like an understatement. So I lived in a home where my mom used to take me to her work and she started a dance studio when she came off the road and they got divorced. She needed to work. She needed a business. She opened up a dance studio. She used to do that before. My mom actually had the number one dance studio in the nation throughout the 80s. Like it was famous, right? And so my little brother went into show business. I still involved in show business. Like he's done things everybody would know. If I said it, they would know it. You're like, okay, got it. So, um, but I couldn't be at home alone with my stepdad. And um, so I had to go to the dance studio with her every day, which I hated. So let me ask you this. So so while you're there, is it because you instigated or both or him? Well, he was the adult, I was the kid. So I'm gonna say at this moment, though I was no cakewalk, it's on him. There's a lot of adults that, yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) And I mean, he's got a background. He went through a bad divorce, lost his kids. His wife took his kids to Bolivia. I mean, like he had some baggage, right? So when my little brother was born, there was a death grip on my little brother. And I, and I pushed that part, right? Right. But he was a grown-up. I was a 10-year-old. So <laughs> yeah, I'm going yeah, yeah. to tell totally. him he has to own part of that, right? So things would get physical at 10? As far back as I can remember. Okay. Yeah. So they got married when I was eight. Yes, they were physical from the time, that time forward. Same time when I'd visit my dad every other weekend. As soon as my dad started dating my stepmom, who, by the way, my stepmom, I love my stepmom. She has never treated me as anything other than her two biological daughters. Nice. Like she has loved me. Like she's, she's amazing. My dad and my stepdad were both very angry, very handsy men, if you will. Yep. So uh, they both believed that discipline should come quick, fast, and hard. And uh, so that's what I grew up in. So I lived in a house where I couldn't really live in my neighborhood. Uh, be in my house. I had to go to work with my mom all the time. And I had an inter, what they called an interdistrict transfer. So I went to a school in Upland, but I lived in Rancho Cucamonga. And that's for a whole variety of reasons. But then I couldn't really grow up on my block because it wasn't, I couldn't stay home with my stepdad. And so I had this weird childhood. So in my home, everybody else had a different last name. In fact, Lisa and I go back so far, she remembers me going by Jeff Brown. 
That's my stepdad's last name. So I couldn't be there. So I wasn't connected in my neighborhood to my, to my friends on the block. Right. I didn't go to a school locally. I went to a school like 20 miles or 15 miles away. I didn't live in a household where anybody had my last name. And when I went somewhere where they had my last name, I slept on a couch for most part. Right. And so I never fit in anywhere. And that's something in 2015, when I was writing, that was a lesson I learned. Like I struggled to ever have a sense of being and, and belonging. Right now, we live in a time where society really stresses find your tribe and all that kind of lingo. But the imp- because we recognize the importance of that now. Right. So imagine now what, what lacking in that would do to a, a kid that ultimately is going through their already just by genetics, the roughest time of their life. Right. Yeah. So I didn't have a place where I really fit. And so I always struggle with that. And so when you fast forward, so drugs, it's not a shock, right? Uh, Trouble, not a shock. And so I've been getting in trouble since elementary school. I mean, legit police trouble. And my next door neighbor and I, um, we used to sneak out when we were in elementary school, we used to sneak out of our house and wander around the neighborhoods, not even do anything wrong other than being (laughs) out, right? And every car, headlights we see, we'd jump in the bushes and hide because we were out after curfew. And we were like 10, right? Or, you know, nine or whatever. And so I always had this, I do whatever I wanted to. And that progressed into trouble, right? And so drugs came at 12, I think, 13. um, I had an incident uh, selling drugs, got caught. Somebody... when you're selling drugs to middle schoolers, right. you can't. It's a good uh, chance of getting caught. The, the silence code isn't built in yet. Yeah, so don't commit felonies with middle schoolers. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, had a, a policing. Now, again, my dad, my stepdad was a former San Bernardino County Sheriff. And so I got a lot of action. I mean, like he got a lot of action. I got out of trouble. Yeah. And, um, and so my mom kicked me out when I, right before I turned 13 and sent me to my dad's, which I made... I made it at my dad about two years and uh, got kicked out of there. So um, I've been on my own since right around turning 16, uh, 15, 16. And for all, this is where I'll answer your question differently. For all things I did wrong. Like I made those decisions, though I was a, a minor, I knew what I was doing was wrong. So understand this, though. So even though you understand it's wrong, I think what it, it's important for everybody, but it's important for parents to realize that we are developing the looking glass that you, uh, our kids view the world in. Yeah. So if we give them a hazy looking glass, expect their decisions to be bad. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I remember things like, so I lied about everything. Like all my parents will tell you that an, an honest word never came out of my mouth. Right. right. And so, you know, I, I'd get in trouble for lying a lot. But I also grew up in a household where the phone would ring. My mom would tell me to answer the phone and say she's not there. And so I know <laughs> that's not the same thing, uh, right. but it is the same it thing. Is, like yeah. she was not honest in ways. And that was kind of, we lived in that culture where what I was doing is wrong, but I was also experiencing it. My, I was, I think seven or eight is right around the time my dad was marrying my stepmom. My stepmom came to faith in the charismatic Catholic renewal in the Roman Catholic church which quickly moved over to a more charismatic Christian church. A lot of people came to faith in the charismatic Catholic renewal in the early 70s. And then they left and they went to Protestant Christian churches because they wanted more of the Bible. So that was common. 
So she came to faith. She led my dad to faith right around when they were getting married. And I think that's what got them married because they were living together. I think that, don't quote me on that, but it was right around there. And so my dad came to faith. um, And so he came to faith. And most people heard me say something about this. It was a very legalistic version of church at the time. There was lots of rules. I was, I grew up in the uh, where my dad was a Christian in the like burn all your albums and music oh, all yeah, rock yeah. music is satanic and all this stuff and so you know TV shows like Love Boat were on but we weren't allowed to watch that because it was about people hooking up that weren't married right but every night my dad watched MASH now just to be clear I think MASH is one of the funniest shows ever developed but it's filled with people hooking up that aren't married I mean right. it's built on that premise and so I felt the hypocrisy everywhere even in my exposure to church. And so I lived how I wanted to live. Do you think that your dad had his opinions on rock music because of his own decision-making while he was a rock musician? So in the 80s, uh, rolled up sleeves, turned up collars, even cuffed pants, shoes with no socks, right? I mean, that was the yep. style, new, new wave. I was into punk and new wave and, and metal and all that stuff. And I remember him telling me, like, we couldn't flip our collar up because when he grew up in the 50s, that was a a rebellion. It was just a fad and a style by the time I was doing it. But more than or equal to the hypocrisy and the anger, what probably was the most negative part was my experience of the gospel. Now, there may have been more there uh, that I just didn't hear, and that's okay. My experience with the church and my dad's faith was very rules driven. I saw no joy. I was, I was that, we, we joke about it, like I was the kid in the back of the car with the dad yelling all the way to church who would pop out of the car in his suit and tie and, hello brother, how you doing? And anyway, I was just so bad. And I, I, another thing, their, their legalism, this, this is so stupid when I say it out loud, but this was a big deal to me. We had to wear nice like Sunday dress clothes, but I was in an era of the church where all the other kids were wearing jeans and Converse. Oh, yeah. And it fed that I don't fit in narrative in my head. And so I didn't fit in the church either. And I think that between that and my experience with my dad pushed me away from the church for another 15 years. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting. But it's it's actually super valid, right? Like um, the legalism of of your relationship with God and— it's one thing for yourself, right? Some people, that's how they live. Absolutely. That's how they thrive or whatever. But when you impose that on everybody, it, it, it takes away the relational yeah. component of Jesus, right? Yeah. And, and you, Je- Jesus, who is the most accepting, the most graceful, yeah. you never even really got to experience while at church, which is a little backwards, right? It is. And now I, I did have little things. I don't, I believed in all the gospel things, Christmas, Easter, the life, death, resurrection. I believed in those things. Um, My dad forced me to read the Bible, and I say that the way I say it, because one, it's true, but I also want you to hear the negative in it, right? So I was actually forced to read the Bible, especially for those two years I lived with him, every, every night or every day, whatever it was, for about a half an hour or whatever. So uh, before I'd ever come to faith, I'd read the Bible cover to cover. I oh, wow. knew more about the Bible wow. before I was a Christian than a lot of Christians do. And, um, but it was also a negative. I was being forced to. And I loved, uh, maybe that this is part of 
what I love today too, but I love the Old Testament stories. Uh, so, you know, first Samuel, second Samuel, the stories of David, yeah, and, yeah. you know, Solomon and whatever else. I love the narratives and the histories of those things. And, um, but I didn't, I don't remember ever hearing the gospel other than sin. I don't remember grace. I don't remember like life transformation being a part of the gospel. It was, it was really sin, you know, heaven or hell. It was some of those things. And, and the life I lived, especially a little bit later, I wasn't afraid of death. I clearly wasn't afraid of hell. Hell wasn't a motivator. Heaven wasn't a motivator. And I, it was that gospel. It was that Jesus loving grace and uh, all that kind of stuff. I didn't really hurt here. And so it wasn't until much later that that became a part of the gospel. Right. So when it comes to like, um, and this is my assumption, right? Like this is me trying to wrap my head around legalism. Sure. It's hard to be legalistic and graceful. Oh yeah. You know? So, yeah. so when you are legalistic and this is giving them the benefit of the doubt here. Sure. Most legalistic people aren't trying to be so hard nosed. They're not trying to be so judgmental and, and condemning. It's just hard to be legalistic and graceful. Yeah. And I think if I'm going to give, so my dad, my dad to this day is somewhat angry. He's a much, much better man today. Uh, but anger is probably going to be a thorn in his side all his life, right? Um, his dad committed suicide when he was seven years old. and That's tough. I mean, bad start, right? Uh, he grew up, he was drafted, went to Vietnam. Uh, tough again. Along with his stepdad, you know, had other kids. Very, very poor in Virginia. I mean, there's a lot of negative there. By the time he comes around... Um, I think he wanted me. I think he wanted my mom. I, th I, I think all those things. When he came to faith, I think he believed he was being a good dad with the rigidity and the discipline. And I was a train wreck. By that time, I was solidified that I was going to go in opposite direction. But um, I remember the violence. I don't remember the love. I believe he loved me. Like, I believe he loves me to right. this day. Always did. He was not good at sharing that part. He was good at showing the anger part. Um, I don't have a single, this is terrible, but this is, it's true. I don't have a single good memory. Like anytime I've ever worked on a car, I've, I've had to learn from someone else or do it. So I never got to do that with him. And, and some of those things that could have been cool dad moments. Yep. There was just so much anger. They never happened. I think he wanted them to. I remember he wanted to build remote control model airplanes with me. He went on to do it. We never did, but there was always discipline, anger, frustration. So we never got around to that. By the time I got out of prison, which spoiler alert, right? <laughs> uh, but by the time that happened, I didn't really have a foundation to build with him. I didn't look back on any good moments and that struggles us to this day. Yeah, yeah. I, like, um, you know, in my situation, not negative, but the same thing. Sure. So like when I dealt with my dad, it was almost man to man. It wasn't father son ish at all. It was for somebody listening who doesn't know, go back to the first episodes of Story of Faith and, and Rob has an accident that wipes out his memory. I just so wanted to no say memory. that I'm hosting this episode. I know, so if you can, but uh... <laughs> I don't know how, I don't know how to be a passenger. So but with no positive memories, right? There's you have to start from scratch. 
and mine had some baggage there. Yeah, and so totally. we struggled to develop a father-son bond kind of plagues us to this day. We don't talk a lot. So And all the stuff is better, but we don't talk a lot. Yeah, that's that's um I think that's a common, right? I think it's a even with the generations. Sure. And I think that like your father's generation uh, all generations can't get out of our own way, right? As right, people, right. people are people. We're all sinful. We all just can't, we can't get out of our own way normally. But in that generation, people that came back from Vietnam, the country that they came back to hated them. Yeah, and they there there was nothing but hatred yeah. for them. So they they really they really imp- imploded within themselves, and that's how they created their processing systems for dealing with. People, yeah. even family, and and that kind of thing, you know. That's fair. It's yeah. uh, it's, it's crazy what we do to ourselves as people, yeah. right? I think everybody looking back on Vietnam recognizes we should have been there, and if even if we should have been around, we shouldn't have done it the way we did. Right. We were handcuffed right. in there, and so, but that's never a soldier or uh, you know a sailor's fault. That's obviously people at the top making decisions, yep. right? So yeah, I that anger. Obviously, fast forward, that becomes kind of the defining attribute of my dad's and I's relationship. So along those lines, one night I'm I'm 15 years old. For whatever reason, I was trying to get some work and do whatever. And um, I've been riding motorcycles. I've been on two wheels a lot longer than I've been on four. And so he had bought me this Honda scooter and uh, they were popular back in the day. And, and um, I was trying to get a job and do whatever. And so um, I go out my window, which I'd done a lot of times. And again, I'd done this as a little kid at my other house with my other parents, right? So I go out the window, uh, jump down, I push the scooter down the street, fire it up and I'm out. I go to this party. I was never allowed to go to parties. I was always in trouble and parties wouldn't have been something they would have let me go to anyhow, you know? Um, And so I go do this and we're at this party, it's kind of spilled out of the house onto the street and we're all screwing around outside. And I go to take off, I think I was gonna head back home, it doesn't really matter. As I go to take off, somebody jumps on the back of the scooter with me, it wobbles me and we lay it down and it lays down over my ankle, breaks my leg. And so um, I'm, now I'm busted. But yep. you can't get around the fact that my, my ankle's broken. So I don't go home. I stay at that friend's house that night, and uh, instead of going there, we go to. My, he takes me to my mom's, and so I go up to my mom's. Hey, I got a broken ankle. You got to take me to the doctor. So she does, and uh, my dad said, "Hey, he left. He can't come back." And so, like, wow. bagged up my stuff. So that's now, a hard line. <clears throat> it was that's uh, a hard was not grace filled. Yeah. And so I go on to not talk to my dad for a few years, and I got a cast, and I don't know, it was two months later, or whatever, I was out on my own. And so, so that's I wouldn't where recommend this ends. at all. But the move is get back to your house, stage like a skateboard or something right out to your bed. Funny. Get up, stage the fall, break your leg getting out of bed the next morning. Yeah. So to to until I think five ten years ago, uh, my dad thought I I broke my ankle jumping out of the window, oh. out of the window off the roof, <laughs> okay, right? Okay. Okay. Which I didn't do, and I argued with him. But again, I lied all the time, so he was right not to yeah, believe yeah, me. Yeah. Funny story, though. Had I come up with some version of that, I might have not gotten as much trouble <laughs> if I had just bought into his version. Yeah. I think I could have pulled it off, but yeah. That's I, funny. 
<laughs> yeah, so ego got in the way. So, so if, if you would have chose his lie instead of your lie, I might you would have been better off. <laughs> That's funny. So now yeah. you're 15, 16, and you're, you're living no, on, my own. on the streets? Yeah, Where so you- uh, at that point, uh, by the grace of other friends that sleep on some couches, and uh, unfortunately, all my friends were in trouble too. And uh, I remember parents telling me like, hey, you can't hang out with that. My parents telling me you can't hang out with the other person because they're a bad influence. Well, actually, I was the bad influence. And so <laughs> in almost every circumstance. And, uh, but I, li- I live with some friends. Um, and uh, one of the families that eventually took me in, and I call this family my family to this day, uh, was a mom who had started out as a prostitute. Uh, ended up a drug dealer. She aged out of being in that business, right? She ended up pimping out other women, drug dealing, and she was connected to some pretty, uh, some pretty ca- crazy characters. At the time, the president of the Hell's Angels uh, would call me his son when I was 18 years old, and another dude was a contract killer, and he called me his son, and probably does to this day. Um, these guys who are all gangsters yep. and legit in trouble, big gangsters and there it was a family of I think it was seven siblings at the time uh six guys and a girl there's another girl now uh but uh that's who I grew up with so when my family I'll say didn't want me and that's not that they didn't want me but they didn't want me was how I felt uh, I had others who loved me said they were mine and welcomed me but they were all bad influences so you fast forward or you uh, rewind back to my biggest issue of wanting to fit in finally I found a place where I fit in, but it's all wrong. So check this out. So the lesson here as a parent or any, any relationship is that this is a great example of how what you give isn't what matters. Right. It doesn't matter if you give your kid a great house and a great car and when he's 16 and, you know, this lifestyle that, that you yeah. think that's very superficial. That's not what matters. At the end of the day, it was acceptance yeah. that you gravitated to. Yeah, absolutely. And I understand that my parents couldn't accept what I was doing. That's okay, right? But I really don't have a lot of loving memories. My loving memories go back to when I'm young, that four-year-old yeah. in the van. Um, after my mom and my dad split up, my mom uh, was broke as all get out, but uh, would take me shopping. And again, we bought educational things, but I remember her loving on me, doing things tangibly so that I knew she loved me. And I have those with her. I don't have those right. with my dad. So it is those it is those moments where you can love the, the children um, and make sure they know you love them in, in ways that make sense, that stay forever, right? It's not the big house. They they both had very nice houses. Right. That didn't matter. <laughs> so now you're uh, you're late teens. Yeah. And when when was the first time you got in real legal trouble where you had to end up like doing time or even going to court? Like yeah. How, how that first experience is. So I in fifth grade had the police called and ended up getting kicked out of a public school. Uh, we were young and we were messing around with these girls and it, it sounds horrible in today's culture back then it was probably less horrible we were we were grabbing the girls inappropriately in fifth grade me and this other boy and the girls were laughing about it and whatever and they were talking on the phone that night but we were doing right. something completely one illegal two inappropriate they were talking on the phone laughing about it and a parent heard it police were called out and I was 
uh, I was able to finish. There was like two weeks left in school. I was able to finish out school, and then I could not come back to that school. So I had to go to private school in sixth grade, and then I went back to public school in seventh grade and eighth grade. Drugs started then. Eighth grade, got caught selling drugs. Got sent to my dad's. I uh, went to five high schools in three years. Uh, the, four, the fifth one was a continuation school. Was, I got kicked out of, I fought a lot, I ditched a lot. And uh, so on my own, 15, 16, and would be brought home by the police frequently. Right. Um, so, and that's a 16. Uh, there was a lot of drugs and being out the wrong times in the wrong places. My dad being a former, a recent former San Bernardino County Sheriff when we lived in San Bernardino County, um, they brought me home back to the home I didn't live at, would let me go because they knew who I uh, was yeah, and yeah. I'd leave, right? So at 17 years old, I asked my mom and my dad to emancipate me, make me a legally adult, and I joined the army. And uh, because I was in trouble and I knew in my head I needed discipline. Yep. And so my functional savior, something I would say today, I, d I wouldn't have said then, was going to be the military. And so I joined the army at 17 and um, I was discharged uh, by the time I was 18 I was discharged it was a medical mandatory discharge so I got out not long after I went in right. and my dreams my solution to my train wreck of a life my dreams went up in smoke and so I so I was if you know me today you know Lisa my wife Lisa and I were dating in high school and I told her, I'm going to go to the Army, going to go to boot camp and AIT, get stationed, do whatever. And we were in the desert the first time, you know, with Reagan and all that. And so we were there. Um, and once you graduate high school, she's a year younger than me, I'll marry you. And I'm going to do 20, 25 years in the military. I'll retire, you know, mid-40s with a, you know, a big pension. Yep. And I had tested into being, an air, uh, to being a helicopter pilot. And so I went in as, as artillery with a plan to be a pilot and qualified for it. And when that blew up, pardon the pun, uh, but when that didn't happen, I got out 18 years old with no life. Um, I tested into the military, so no actual diploma. And I was angry and right back on the streets and I was worse than I ever was. And so I was in and out of jail. Lisa broke up with me rightly in and out of jail throughout the end of the 80s and then ultimately in prison by the time we hit the 90s. And how old were you? So I was born in 69. So in the end of the 80s, I was in my late teens, 89, 20. Uh, I was 21 uh, when I was doing time. And so I did most of the 90s locked up. I was in and out most of the 90s behind bars. All drugs. And All what comes from related. that, right? So yeah. Yeah. And so the drugs led to crime because you're a kid and you can't yep. afford it and you end up selling them and then you end up doing other things. And then um, this need for being accepted led to gangs. And so um, violence will get you into a gang pretty quick. And so, so will drugs and crime. And so all that led to gangs, led to jail, which heightened the whole experience of gangs and, and being uh, validated as somebody, making a name for yourself in that world finally gave me and then again remember all the guys that would call me their son and acted like my dad they were all killers and so they were all criminals and they were all tipped up to other things yep. and so I embraced that life and finally was accepted um, and I the turning point really wasn't around that it was around the fact of what I'd become not the outcome of what I was doing right. but I realized I'd become something different Yep. So 
think about from from that five-year-old version that we're our four-year-old version think about how much life took place yeah like there's a lot of bad invested in you you yeah. know what i mean i mean if this world doesn't need a, a savior right. i don't know where it is but right. you had solid what 20 15 20 years of nothing but bad things yeah i mean you've had i'm sure there are a good, good moments along the ways yeah. or whatever but your 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 character building principles were all negative right yeah so you end up in prison at like 1920 right 1920 yeah, years old county jails from 18 on okay uh prison early 20s and all the way up until i get released um before i'm already i'm 29 and a half when i get released i'm out six months when i turn 30. and so my 20s are wiped out yeah. with primarily being locked up yeah so and your, your teens were wiped out with primarily knuckleheaded stuff that yeah that honestly I, you know i don't give anybody a pass right we all own right. our own stuff right. but but this this stuff happened because of it really wasn't you didn't set this in motion right? i inherited right? some you sin. inherited yeah. some sin for sure so yeah. now whenever i hear you talk about how we inherit sin yeah. and then we add our own sin to that and then the next generation here dude now i totally get it more than ever what you're trying to say right. just by hearing your experience connected to that one yeah. line that you say often say yeah and that is and i don't base my theology off my experience I've developed a theology biblically, but I see my life in it. And I inherited sin, and then I sinned on top of it. I inherited a broken world, a broken family, a broken identity because of things other people did to me. The divorce affected me. The yep. affair my dad had um, affected me. And I'm not holding that against him. I'm just saying reality is I inherited brokenness from that. And then I added, knowingly, by the time I'm 13, 14, I'm making decisions I know are wrong yep, yep. and are criminal and are problematic and are hurting other people. So now I'm doing the same thing, Yep. right? So all of this comes to a head and I am in a prison cell and I give my life to Jesus. Here's and how old were you? 27, okay. 27. And um, years of addiction, years of in and out. And here's what happens. So I get out of prison and I'm out for less than 100 days. When I get out, I'm gang affiliated. I'm all this. And there's other people that are gang affiliated. And we are another guy who just got out of prison. And we're going door to door and we're robbing drug dealers. And so that turns into home invasion robberies. And so we are literally robbing drug dealers. So this is not a. This is not a life plan that ends up living long. <laughs> so when I joke around, say I never thought I was going to live because I just had my birthday. I just turned 53. And I say, you know, I never planned on living this long. I would have planned better. Well, seriously, I actually <laughs> never planned on living this long. So, um, you know, I, so I was doing these things and we go through the doors of this house. We put everybody on the ground. We move them into one room. Uh, by the way, there's a litany of felonies I just mentioned in that last <laughs> sentence, right? Kidnapping as soon as you move somebody. We're robbing Hispanic drug dealers. I have a gang affiliation that's racial, so now it's a hate crime, and yeah. we're using guns. We're I mean, all this stuff, right? And so this one woman, this young woman, she's probably 18, I, I'm guessing, 
is like ready to pop pregnant as we go through the doors and we put everybody on the ground to move them into a room where you can contain them, right? You got to contain everybody so you can do what you want to do. And I remember telling everybody to crawl into the room and I told her she'd kind of like walk over on her knees. And I remember looking at her and said, I'm sorry, don't move. Like, this sucks that I'm doing this to you. Don't move. Yeah. Like, that's the deal, right? And so we left that night and that... By the way, this guy who's a dealer, is a pretty big dealer, but his family wasn't involved. And they really didn't have this coming. He totally did. You're in the game, you're in the yeah. game. Like I don't have I don't even feel bad when you're a dealer, you get what you get. I got what I got. I did what I did. They didn't have that coming. They were young and they were not a part of that life. And so um, we leave that night and we did this in a stolen car. We get out of the stolen girl a car. I've got a girl with me. I'm back in my car. And we were between Ontario Police Department, Upland Police Department, San Bernardino County Sheriffs, we were arrested on site. If you saw us, you'd pull us over. So you talk about profiling, but I had it coming, right? (laughs) And so Upland PD gang detail sees me, red lights me, I pull over, I look at the girl in the car and I said, I'm going back to prison. She looks at me. So they pull us out of the car, they do a felony stop with me, if you've ever seen any of that. The girl has drugs in her purse. And we have a gun in the car, drugs in the car, all kind of stuff. Anyhow, so I'm literally going back to prison. I know I'm going back to prison. And they're telling her, hey, just say the drugs are his and we'll let you go. She's like, no, no, no. And they actually put us both in the back of a car together, which they never do. And I'm like, tell them it's mine. She's like, no, no. And I just tell them it's mine. I'm going back. It doesn't matter. So (laughs) I go back to prison. Now, side note, the guy I'm doing this stuff with is an absolute psycho i mean like he's a nut right he would shoot you as quick as you shake your hand and so this thing that happens takes place in the middle of this uh home invasion robbery so i go to jail that night a week or two later he is locked up in this pod right across from me and i ask him about it and his answer to me changed my life his answer to me says hey you really make me nervous and so that changed my life so this guy who is an absolute nut i make him nervous that comment you make me nervous from a guy who would make you nervous would make me nervous like this guy was a nut changed my life and so i left that conversation i go back in my cell and there's a guy who's in my cell with me and i tell him hey when they crack the doors you need to go out in the day room i need to be alone and um and i prayed everything from the past the exposure to church and Jesus and the gospel and whatever, and all the prayers of my stepmom, who really does love me and pray for me. All these things came to this moment where I prayed, okay, God, you always said you could change me. If you'll change me, I'll follow you. I'll never leave you. Like I will, I, I didn't have words for it, right. but you changed me. I'll never leave you. I wasn't praying to get out of prison. I was going back. I was in a county jail cell going back to prison. As soon as a felon with a firearm, you're yeah, going you're back to prison. Years, There's right? no, yeah. yeah. And so I was going to do it. I didn't have any problem with that. I was concerned. I hadn't been sentenced yet um, about that home invasion robbery. And there was some word on the street of what we had done. Um, but the guy who didn't get busted until a couple weeks later had gone back and, and uh, said things like, um, so you never say these words out loud, right? You're not going to uh, tell on us. You know, he'd made, he made a dent for sure. And uh, so I didn't get busted for all the extra stuff. And that home invasion robbery could have put me away for life. And uh, instead, I got the felon with a firearm, the drugs, the parole violation, all that stuff. So I'm going back to prison. 
And I didn't pray that I wouldn't go back to prison. Like I was comfortable inside. And that was part of the thing that kind of bothered me. Like, why am I more comfortable in than out? Yeah. Why, when the police lit me up, like, why did I just pull over and go, hey, I'm going back to prison. Like, it's okay, right? Hey, tell them the drugs are mine. It's okay, right? So I was more comfortable in than out. That guy said something that forever changed my life. I prayed that night. When I was done, I walked out of the day room, go back to playing cards or whatever. And I remember telling this younger dude from Ontario where I'm from, um, hey, man, I'm going to do this God thing. I don't know what it's going to look like, but things got to change for me. So the next day, they let us out to go to yard. And uh, it's this little concrete yard. It's, a, it's not really a yard, but that's what they call it. So, and this guy calls me over. He goes, hey, aren't you so-and-so? I said, yeah. And he said, um, you want to hit this joint? I said, yes, right? I hit this joint and I turned around as I exhaled and that younger dude was looking at me. For the first time ever, I felt guilty about using. Oh, and like, wow, I'm like, I just told him I was gonna do something different and here I am like exhaling weed into his face, right? So I go back to my cell after they let us out of the yard and uh, I prayed, okay, God, I can't do this. Like I am not built to quit, right? And I'm just going back to prison now and if you brought drugs in and you were white, you brought them in through us. Like we saw everything. Right. And I said, God, I can't do this. And I fell asleep and I've been clean ever since. God literally took away a many year addiction. Wow. I've never used again. I don't even really think I've ever wanted to use again. And this is a long addiction where I really had tried to quit in the past, right? I didn't have the ability. And God met me in that moment in a way I just couldn't have done it any other way. Like I wouldn't have made it. And so God began to show up in my life. So I went back, I, I did my prison time. Which I, was how long? I did the next, as a three year sentence, so I did the next, I did less than that. So less than two. Right. After I came to faith, I did less than two years. And um, got out during that time though, I reconnected with Lisa. We had, after the military, we'd talked and we'd hung out and stuff. But we'd. We had not been together and she had recently kind of come back to faith. And so I've come to faith. She's come back to faith. Funny story. My dad, the musician runs into her mom at a concert with somebody he used to be in a band with and they swap phone numbers. How's Jeff? Well, he's doing good. He's in prison, but he's doing good. How's Lisa? She's doing well, blah, blah, blah. And literally gave my information to Lisa who gives their daughter some inmates information. <laughs> These are like Christian normal people, not like, yeah. you know, a bunch of felons swapping numbers. But so she reaches out to me. We reconnect as God is changing my life. We get back together. And long story short, uh, the end of 98, I parole from prison for the final time. May 22nd of 99, we get married. December 31st. Oh, June 1st, I turned 30. So I turned 30 on my honeymoon. December 31st, 1999, everybody's panicking about Y2K. And Lisa's <laughs> my plans were to go with my sister and her boyfriend. We're going to go to Knott's Berry Farm with all those Christian concerts. And right as we're getting ready and I'm waiting for my sister to show up, I get the mail uh, from our little apartment in Long Beach, right down the street from your house. Actually, it's that yeah. one I've shown yeah, you. Yeah. I get the mail and my discharge card comes. So I am legitimately off parole, out of trouble wow. as we start the new millennium. Wow, check that out. So I have chills. So, I, it, was a, it was a great moment. Yeah, so up to this point, you've lived your life a certain way that's gotten you to where you've gotten. You've actually, without any strength in yourself, uh, was transformed by God. 
Yeah. And now you're starting the next chapter of life with your childhood love. Yep. Free from the bondage of the system yep. and, and, and drugs and everything that comes with it. Yeah. And that, my friend, is where we start episode two. Thank you for listening to this story about how Jesus made a difference. Generations Church is filled with ordinary people who met an extraordinary Savior. Subscribe so you don't miss a single story. Would you stop and share this with one friend today? The story of Jesus is most easily seen in the lives of people who know Him.